Paul's Gospel claims that anyone who simply trusts in Jesus receives forgiveness and a transforming eternal life. Can God promise us eternal salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ? And is it certain? Listen to our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, and to what Paul has to say in Romans 9, 6-18, in a message we have titled, Mercy Me. We want to talk today about keeping promises, and one of the most powerful stories about keeping promises is the story of General MacArthur. A lot of you know that uh, Ken Burns is doing a new documentary, and so a lot of you might have been caught up in learning about World War II again. And just to remind you of one of the most powerful stories in World War II is that as the Japanese began to take over Southeast Asia, as they began to take one island after another, Fortress Singapore, for example, was held by the British. The British Empire boasted it was impregnable. The Japanese took it within a matter of hours. General MacArthur, with American truth, was on Corregidor. It was an island in the Philippines, impregnable, heavily fortified, and the Japanese fleet outside of Corregidor was putting a tremendous pressure, like just like the hands of a great big lobster that's closing down on Corregidor. General MacArthur wanted to stay. He wanted to stay with his Marines. He wanted to stay. He had been trained as an officer from West Point that you, you stay with your men and you fight to the last drop. But they pled with him. The United States government pled, said, General MacArthur, we need you. We're going to need you in the coming campaign. And so the famous story is that he snuck out through a single ship, took his family, and he snuck out through the naval barricade of the Japanese, and he made it down to Australia. Who can tell me? He said some very famous words. He snuck past the naval brigade of the Japanese. He made a very famous statement. Everybody tell me that statement was, I will return. I shall return. The war proceeded. General MacArthur arrived in Australia. If the Japanese would have just kept their attack coming right down through Borneo, right down into Australia, it would have been a totally different story because General MacArthur thought that there was a large British army, a large Australian army. He thought the American military was really strong in Australia. Actually, there was nothing in Australia. If the Japanese would have kept on coming, it would have been the end in many ways. General MacArthur was able to buy time. The Japanese got held up in the jungles coming down through the mountains, and for some reason they didn't attack, just like Hitler didn't attack across the English Channel when the British were totally at a zero point at Dunkirk. Same thing happened, a great mystery of God's plan. But General MacArthur began to mobilize the British troops and the American troops, and we began to mobilize as a nation, and then they began their quest up through the mountains. My very close friend, Harry Ballback, was one of General MacArthur's Marines, and he hit those islands. And I've actually talked to him about what it was like to be in a military transport the night before you hit the beach. And I had him tell me in detail about coming in those, those beach landings and running off that, 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 that military when the big ramp came down and running out with machine gun fire all over and hitting the beach and just scooping for sand with machine gun bullets, destroying your buddies all around you, going up into the island and finding little saplings, anything you could get for cover, and how he and his Marine buddies would take those islands one after another. 
They came up towards the Philippines. A lot of people pled with General MacArthur to keep on going. You don't need the Philippines. Just keep on going up through the islands, skip through the islands. We'll get to Japan quicker. But MacArthur said no. There was the famous death march. Hundreds of military officers and and soldiers just died of starvation as the Japanese just shamed any prisoner. They thought you should just take your life. And so they just destroyed. They starved them and they beat them and they killed them. It's one of the worst stories in military history in our American military history. Just men just died. But there was a small group that did that death march that were in prison. And General MacArthur said, I told the Philippines, I will return. And the United States Marines landed first, then the heavy army invasions followed. Corregidor was taken, the Philippines was retaken, and the men of the death march were set free. And some of you have seen those pictures of emaciated men with General MacArthur. And if you're an A&M or one of the very famous, if you're an Aggie, one of the famous, famous Musters was the muster in 1946 in April 21st. On April 21st, if you're an Aggie, you know that all the Aggie, they muster in the spring of the year. And they remembered those that were lost. And all over the South Pacific, Aggie military men came from everywhere in the South Pacific and they came to Corregidor, and this is a picture of the Aggie muster of April 21st, 1946. And this is very close to our hearts because Bob Stanberry's daddy is in this picture. What makes that story so powerful is that a man kept his promise. General MacArthur said, I will return. If you were imprisoned on that death march, there was a promise. Deliverance is coming. I will return. Romans chapter 9 is about a great Savior, a great God that said, I will deliver you. I make a promise that you're enslaved by sin and death. And I make a promise like when Adam and Eve, at the very beginning of history, God made a promise to Adam and Eve as they stood naked in their shame and God was cursing them, punishing them because of their rebellion. They should have just been destroyed, but in the midst of giving that pronouncement of judgment against sin, God looked at the serpent and said to Satan, Satan, you're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dust you're going to be totally destroyed. It's a Hebrew expression that means you're going to be totally destroyed. I can almost hear the serpent saying, how are you going to do that? I've won everything. He said, you see that woman over there that you tricked? That woman that you tricked one day is going to produce a male child. And that male child's going to grow up and you're going to strike that male child like a great big cobra you're going to strike the heel of that male child. And your poison is going to stream through the body of that male child. But then the male child is going to cut your head off. He's going to smash your head, and he's going to totally destroy your curse of sin and death. 
and the drama of human history was on. That's what the whole story of the Bible is about. And the big issue is, is who believes in that promise and who does not. And so we come to Romans chapter 9. As you come to Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul raises a really serious question, the big story of history, and it's also the story of a life. How many of you this morning have your entire life based on the promise of God? All of you this morning, none of us know when it might happen. Jesus might come back. We might be taken in death. I want every one of you to stop and think, what are you trusting in? And the common belief, the common belief out there, in fact, it's a common belief here this morning, is that if you are a member of a church or a member of a Jewish religion or Islamic religion or a Hindu religion, the common belief throughout the area, throughout this area of Texas, there's a whole group of people that believe that if you're good, if you help little ladies across the street, if you are fair in business, if, you're, if you are, are a good family person, if your religion tells you to keep fasts and to keep holy days that you do that. Some of you have been related to religious faiths that say if you're a lady, if you wear certain kinds of clothes and wear your hair up a certain way, that's going to really do it. Some of you have been taught if you don't listen to certain kinds of music, if you don't eat certain kinds of food, if you don't drink certain kinds of things, I want you to know that it permeates the world. Everywhere you go in the world, people will say you get right with God because you earn it. That the way you become a child of God, the way that you get close to him, is that you earn it. Now, there's another group of people that say, no, it's totally free. It's all on God's side. God does an incredible thing for me. He keeps his promise. He promised Eve that she would produce a great child. And in 5 or 6 B.C., a Jewish girl that was a virgin produced a male child. He was just a Gentile. He was just a, a carpenter's son. I was going to say a Galilean, a Galilean carpenter's son. He wasn't part of the ruling class down in Judea. Down in Judea, they had a beautiful temple. They were offering thousands of sacrifices they had great big ceremonies. All the nation, even from all over the Roman Greek world at that time, would come and they would have big Pentecost festivals, big Passover festivals, and Caiaphas the high priest would get up and there would be thousands of Jewish people and, they, and this whole thing was going. And many of those people believed if you keep, if you're a Jew, if you're born a Jew, if you have Jewish blood in your veins, and then if you are loyal to Judaism throughout a lifetime, and if you keep all these rules and regulations, you will be right with God. And this young Galilean carpenter's son came into the temple and stood up and said, I'm the light of the world. He stood up and said, I'm the living water. And the religious leadership rose up and they killed him because he threatened their religion. But on the third day, he didn't stay dead. And a small group of Jews believed 
that he was the sacrificial savior, the serpent slayer that conquered the curse of death, and they believed. And God called Paul. He was one of the Jews that started out persecuting him. And the big issue, as we look at Romans 9, the big issue is, has God promised failed? So I want you to pretend you're a Jewish person in the first century. The Jewish temple is still standing. Caiaphas' family and the priests that come after him are still doing their thing in Jerusalem. And you are faced with a choice. This Galilean carpenter's son that died on a cursed Roman cross, the equivalent of an electric chair, who now claims to have risen from the dead, there are representatives going all over the world saying he is the one that will keep his promise. He's the one that can deliver you from death. And the only way that you're going to get right with God is just receive his promise. So the big issue is, are you children of the promise or children of works that's going to earn it? And the specific question that the Apostle Paul was trying to answer in Romans 9 is, doesn't the fact that large numbers of Jewish people didn't believe, doesn't that prove that Jesus wasn't the Messiah? It's still an issue today among Jewish friends. Jewish Orthodox friends believe that Jesus was apostate. He was a good man, but he went astray because he didn't tell us to obey all the Torah from their standpoint, that he opened the door for people to eat non-kosher food. He opened the door for you as Gentiles to not have to get circumcised, to get right with God. And they're the ones that are really holding on to religion. They're the ones that are really holding on to how you get right with God. And they can show you the way. And they've even brought it out. They'll say that if you follow your little way, your little good works, maybe you'll get in as well. But what they really stand against is this idea that Jesus was truly the promised Messiah. So look at Romans chapter 9, because that's the question. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, is it, it is not as though, look at verse, verse 6 of Romans 9. It is not as though God's word had failed. You see, that's the big issue. Did God's word fail? Has God's word failed in the world today? In other words, like there's, a, there's, a, there's like a, almost a billion people that are Islamic that believe that you get to heaven by obeying the five pillars of Islam. Doesn't that mean that God's word has failed? I was raised with a lot of Jewish kids that believed that you become a good synagogue, orthodox, kosher Jew. Has God's word failed? And Paul's going to wrestle with that. Has God's word failed? And he answers it this way. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He says, not, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So the very first thing I want you to get across, nobody gets to heaven because they have the right blood. Every one of you need to get it through your noggin. It doesn't make any difference what family you're from. It doesn't make any difference what race you are. It doesn't make any difference whether you're Jewish or you're Gentile. Paul is saying, and you need to ask yourself whether you believe him or not, he's saying this, and it's very important. 
and he's using Israel of those that have believed in the promise, the promise of Genesis 3.15. Those that believe that God has sent a great serpent slayer, and he's saying that those that become part of those serpent-slaying deliverer people that trust in him, it's not dependent upon your birth. So I want to get that all across to you because I have people all the time that say to me, David, I wasn't born into a good evangelical family. We use that word. As I get to know people, even last night, Mary and I did a wedding all day, the last couple of days, way up in Pilot Point and with the Greer family and with Melanie's family. We're interacting with people. And one person says, I'm from a Jewish background. Another person says, I'm from a Roman Catholic background. A lot of you today, we would say, tell me your, your spiritual journey. You're from all different backgrounds. Paul is saying something very important. It doesn't make any difference what family that you're born into. Why not? Look what he says. He says, nor because you are his descendants are you all Abraham's children. The Jewish people of Paul's day said, I'm Jewish. That means I'm in. That means that I am a child of God. And Paul says, no, you're not. And now he's going to prove it to him. He said, you think you're in with God because you're born physically one of Abraham's kids. He says, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not God's natural, it is not the natural children. It's not Abraham's natural children who are God's children. Now get this, it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. The true sons and daughters of Abraham are children of promise, not children of natural birth. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, Paul assumes that you know the story well. Let me just remind you. Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. If you study Genesis, the middle section of Genesis, all the story of God promising Abraham and Sarah they will have a child. And they believe it's the promised child of Genesis 3.15. They get to be 90 years old, Sarah's, Abraham's 100 almost. And they don't have a child. So Abraham takes matter in his own hands. He takes his concubine. It's culturally determined you can do that and raise up a natural child that will be yours. So Hagar mothers a child for Father Abraham and produces Ishmael. And Abraham says, I've done it. What Paul wants you to get is that's part of all of your personalities. We have our human structures. We have our human plans. We're going to figure it out. We're going to help God accomplish his program. Every one of you have that part of your life. God says no. And you got to get this. God comes and has a meal. He has a meal with Abraham. And Abraham was a good host. And after they eat well, the Lord God, probably the second person of the Trinity that will be Jesus when he's born, when he comes to earth with a human body, but God manifests himself in a corporal bodily form, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, nine months from now, you're going to be a proud father because Sarah, your princess, is going to have a baby boy. And she busted out laughing in the kitchen. She says, you're an idiot. We've been trying to have a baby from the time that we got married, and no baby's coming. And God says, oh, yes. In fact, they named the baby, nine months later, laughter. He was totally a child of the promise. I want you to get this. Abraham and Sarah didn't have a chance 
to produce new life in the womb of a dead, infertile Sarah and Abraham. But the miracle happened. And nine months later, Isaac was born, and he's the promised child. This morning, you don't have a ghost of a chance. I don't care what birth you are. I don't care if you're related to Sam Houston. I don't care if you're related directly to Martin Luther King. I don't care if you're a blue blood like my wife Mary that goes right back. She's from the line of the very first baby born of the pilgrims when they landed at Plymouth Rock. (laughs) God says it doesn't make any difference. What has to happen in your life is there comes a moment in your life when you hear the promise. God says, Jesus died for you. God says he's the promised child. He fulfills all the predictions of the Old Testament. And God says he's the only man that rose again from the dead. And you just say, I believe it. And in a moment of time, a spiritual baby is born in your life, you. Did you hear me? It can happen any time, any place. And that's the miracle. So the Jew raised his hand and said, now, wait a minute. Paul, your point isn't made. Because Isaac is fully a natural son of Abraham. So it still depends upon the birth. It depends upon that father and mother. He says, wait a minute. Let's go to the next patriarch. Isaac grows up and becomes a mature man. He looks at the next illustration. He goes, now, only that, but Rebecca, Paul gets the Jewish question. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born and had done nothing, now get this, had done nothing good or bad in order that God's promise in election might stand, it's not by works, but it's by him who called, she was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau have I hated. The idea of this is Jacob I have accepted. In Hebrew idiom, you use the idea of loving and hating. I've chosen Jacob, and I have not chosen Esau. Now, you need to understand this. The Christian church has taken this passage to mean we've debated God predetermines Jacob to be saved. He predetermines Esau to be lost. It's all decreed for the foundation of the world, and then the church divides. On this side, we have the Calvinists, and it's all totally dependent upon the sovereignty of God. If you're from a Methodist background, you're an Arminian probably, and they emphasize free will. How many of you ever heard of free will Baptists? Anybody ever heard of that? You say, where did that come from? They're the ones that emphasize, wait a minute, we got to believe in Jesus. It depends upon us. The Christian church has been divided for 2,000 years. Why? Because we make this passage a question about we want to get into the eternal decrees of God and figure out who's saved and who isn't saved. That's not the subject of this paragraph. What's the question we're answering? The question Paul raised is, Does it depend upon your physical birth? Do you become a child of God because of your physical birth? And he answers, no. 
Now he says, do you become a believer because of your works? Do you become a child of God? Are you forgiven because God sees that you're a good person? Can you sit here today and say, God knew from the beginning of time Dave Wurtzen would be good looking. <laughs> he would be such a great husband. Mary's going to call me on that. He's going to be born into a blue blood evangelical family. Yay for Dave Wurtzen. So God looked into the future, saw me, and said, he's a good guy and he's a bad guy. Paul's saying no. And that's what all of you think. All of us want to believe that I'm in because God was able to see what a great kid I was. Now get this. Paul's point is, you got twins here. They've got one act of sexual relations They've got, in the text is even more graphic. You've got one conception, and then you've got twins. And God said before they did anything good or they did anything evil, and it uses the word foul, before they did any good things, and I like the English word foul, before they did anything good or bad, God said, Jacob is the son of the promise. Esau is not. If you look at Malachi, the verse is actually quoted. It's from Malachi chapter 1. It turns out that the Edomites that flow from Esau are wicked, evil, rebellious people. That the majority of them never accepted the promise of God. But you know, on the other side, Jacob have I loved? The history of the Old Testament is the history of Jewish people that are from the tribe of Judah that Jacob produces. You know what? The Old Testament tells the story that they're what too? They're rebellious. They're idolaters. They're immoral too. In fact, as I read my Old Testament, there's none righteous, no, not one. Remember what we learned in Romans chapter 3? So don't jettison that here. God isn't saying, well, ja I knew Jacob would be a good boy. Jacob is not a good boy. His very name means he's a heel. He trips people up. He's a polygamist. He's a con artist. He cons his uncle. His uncle cons him. But he believed God's call. An incredible thing about Jacob's life. I have no idea why that happened except my father says, the great mystery, I called Jacob, and Jacob listened. And that night in the Jobbik River, when Jacob sent all of his family away, he's wrestling with probably Jesus, and he won't let go of him. What made Jacob that kind of a man? I have no idea. But I want to tell you, it wasn't because Jacob ran better than Esau, because Esau ran better than Jacob. It wasn't because Jacob had some foreseen really goodness. Paul is making it really clear. Your salvation and my salvation doesn't depend upon the fact that I was born into a particular family. We become children of the promise, not by natural birth. And we become the children of God simply because God called us. 
So we all throw up and say, well, that's unfair. Paul hears us say that. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? And this is what all of your unbelieving friends, and you'll do it too. There's a part of me that says, God, if it all depends upon your call, then you're unfair. Because I jump to the fact, well, God, why didn't you just call everybody? And that would lead us to total determinism. In fact, a Calvinist really ends up making God the author of wickedness, which is totally diabolical to Scripture because the Scripture is very clear that in God is no darkness at all. So as a wicked person, I can never say, I'm Pharaoh. And the reason I was Pharaoh and the reason I threw babies in the river and the reason that I killed Jewish people is because it was all part of God's plan. And aren't I a good guy? That's what the book of Judas wants you to believe in modern theological discussion that's been discovered. It says Judas was really a good guy because he put Jesus on the cross and that was God's plan. That's from hell. The Bible says in God there's no darkness at all. So you cannot blame evil and wickedness on God. It's us. And God says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And in the story of the book of Exodus, God does say that he hardened Pharaoh, but it also says that Pharaoh hardened himself. And I could play a what-if game. What if Pharaoh, halfway through the plagues, would have said, I'll let the Israelites go. Well, Manasseh, who was the wickedest king in all Judah, he actually killed his firstborn son. At the end of his life, Manasseh repented and turned to God. You know what the scripture tells us at the end of Kings? God forgave him. And that's what the Bible tells you. No matter what wickedness you've done, if you hear God's call, if you respond to his mercy, God's mercy will come. Does God know all of that? Yes. God's in control, which means that I'm safe and he calls me. But Paul is telling me that I don't become a child of God because of my birth. I don't become a a child of God because of my running hard and my trying hard. And some of you this morning are trying so hard to be God's child and you're trying to run so perfect and you keep failing and God wants you to hear in closing, he wants you to hear God's mercy. God says, don't judge me justly. How many of you have ever heard the expression, mercy me? How many of you have ever said, mercy me? What do you mean by that? I can't believe it. Well, I want every one of you to have the prayer of your life with God. Mercy me. Mercy me, God. Don't give me justice. I'm going to go to hell if I get justice. I want you just to mercy me. And that's why Paul says in Romans 9, and he quotes, this is a marvelous passage where Moses says, God, I want to see you. I want to experience your face. And God says, well, I can't let you see my face but I'll hide you in the rock and let you see my backside. And God says, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire. It doesn't depend upon our effort, but it depends totally upon God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh that I've just been talking to you about, 
I raised you up for this very purpose, Pharaoh, that I might display my power, that I might have my name proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy in whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those he will have honor, which is the closest the Scripture comes to saying that God ultimately controls both sides. But it's cautious. God's mercy, I can trace all the way back. Like, if you know Christ is your Savior, I can trace it all the way back to the eternal before creation. In the Holy Scriptures, I cannot trace Pharaoh's damnation all the way back to eternity past. So don't you. The reason Arminians and Calvinists can't resolve the issue is it's not resolved in the Bible. God says it totally depends upon my call. And God says you're responsible. God says that all those that come to him, he will never turn aside. God says, I've known those that will be part of my flock before the foundation of the world. I want you to listen to the word of God. And the question the Apostle Paul is answering in this passage is not who was predestined to eternal life and who is predestined to eternal damnation. Paul is asking the question, does God's word fail? Does the fact that the majority of Jewish people didn't believe mean that the promise of Jesus doesn't hold. And he says no. Because God has never dealt just with majorities. God's always dealt with the miracle of he, a miracle child. He created a miracle Isaac. He just chose Jacob, not because he was a good person. The call of God totally depends upon the mercy of God. As you leave today, I pray that every one of you have experienced the promise-keeping power of Jesus. And I pray that all of your eternal destiny is firmly rooted in the righteousness that you've received from God. And as I close, I want you to know that that's real. That's really real. A young man was 19 years of age. He didn't know Jesus, wasn't raised in a spiritual background. His girl that he loved was only 15, and she did know Jesus. Not very well, but she knew Jesus. They got married. They made covenant vows of marriage, just like I had Aaron and Melanie, the Greers. Aaron Greer was married last night. So by this beautiful lake with the sun going down, this young couple made promises. This couple, 19 years of age, the man made a promise, till death do his part, I will love you, I will be a husband to you. And the wife made the same promise. All their friends said it'll never work. Charles and Joe Hatley, that usually were sitting right back there, but they're not because they were at the wedding of their grandkids last night, are going to celebrate their 50th anniversary. Because Hat has kept his promise. And their marriage depended. He told me as we were watching the horrible Texas-Oklahoma game yesterday afternoon. <laughs> he told me everybody said we would never make it. In fact, our parents said we'd make it for six months. He said my parents fought and my parents 
did not give me a good marriage example. But deep in my soul, I said I will keep my promise. Had told me that he was baptized. He kind of went along with church, wasn't quite getting it. After Mary and I got to know him, he, we, he had a really bad growth on his leg. And everybody said it was cancer. And they said it needs to come out. Like a lot of the doctors, two doctors said, we've got to cut your leg off. Hat said no. Found a third doctor. The doctor said, I'm going to try to go in, take the big, it was a big growth, the size of a grapefruit. We'll take that out, and I'll try to save your leg. But I don't know if I can do it. Hat said, you've got to do it. The night before he had surgery, he told Mary and I yesterday, he heard a voice that says, my son, you're going to be okay. And he said, peace came over his life. And he told me, he said, Dave, you know, I, I heard about Jesus dying on the cross. I heard about Jesus rising in from the dead. I heard about him really living in her life, and I was on a journey to receive that. He said, I want you to know, that that night in the hospital, I really, really met Jesus. And Hat's been part of our church family ever since. And now they're going to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. And in this case, God brought a great miracle. It wasn't malignant. They saved his leg. And he was able to walk even without a cane, which is a miracle. What I want to understand is that God's call to your heart, it might not be as dramatic as Hat received, Brothers and sisters, I want this church family to never get over the wondrous miracle of God's call. And this morning, maybe you're hearing Jesus speak to your heart. Please, it doesn't depend upon your birth. Maybe you're a man that says, man, I don't even understand the books of the Bible. I have no idea what it is. If you're hearing the message of Jesus, it just depends upon the crucified Savior. He will totally forgive you. It just depends upon the power of his resurrection. If you simply just let him mercy me, in a moment of time, a new little baby spiritually that will last forever will be born in you. And I don't care if you're 106 or if you're five. It can happen. And that's what the message of Romans is about. 